Welcome back, folks. Today we got the Wolf Boys singing Standing on the Promises. A good old gospel tune. Hit it, boys. Preacher's boy got a preach. I didn't think about it much back then. I just believed in God because I was told that good things happen to those who believe in God and follow the commandments. Back then, in my childhood. I also remember hearing that the amount of money I put in the offering plate to carry on God's work would be returned to me tenfold. I believed it in the literal sense. I really thought that by plopping a dime into the offering plate, I would in the near future receive a dollar from someone or maybe scarf up a $10 bill off the pavement. As I approached adolescence, however, I realized that good things in my life, including money from material possessions, weren't adding up to what I thought had been promised. Eventually, I started to withhold my quarters and dimes as the offering plates were being passed around back and forth across the church pews every Sunday morning. As I stepped into my teenage years, it seemed the frequency of embarrassing downfalls and major disappointments were increasing. To absorb the impact of these frustrating shortcomings, I began to believe more strongly in my imaginations and the illusion of grandeur they held forth, the fabled carrot that dangled in front of me to keep me going forward. Ah, those promises of God. I believed, as it turned out, more in the promises of my imaginative fantasy. In this session, I want to show you how that worked. You'll see what I mean. So let's get to it. As a seventh grader, powerful ideas began to evolve, slowly churning and growing in the quixotic brew of my young imagination until they expressed themselves in two divergent passions, deep science and basketball. Over this magical pool of my imagination shimmered the promise of me becoming a rocket scientist and professional athlete. Trajectories, mass, rotation, balance were principles that smelled of science in my book. Electrons spinning, atoms wobbling and smashing apart, thrusting for the rim against gravitational pull of a tiled concrete gym floor. The physics of it all. My junior high years promised a future life of discovery and recognition that I planned to lead. I used to go wandering into the woods and fields around our small neighborhood on High Street to play a lot by myself spinning stories in my head and conducting scientific experiments, sometimes during those long, thoughtful idols, I used to have soulful discussions with President Kennedy's young son and his beautiful First Lady Jacqueline. Now, little John may have been three to four years younger than me at the time, but I took a consoling tone in conversing with him. 
I could identify with the isolation of his fame and character. As we strolled along the brambly hedgerows, I entertained the idea he might like to invite me to his house to play, to meet his famous parents. We could watch TV and play Chinese checkers. Well, my imaginings while in the confines of church incited me to marvel at the gem collections worn by the ancient high priests in the books of the Pentateuch, and eventually pondering in the Songs of Solomon a passage about what women wore when they weren't wearing anything at all. The writer poeticizes his lover, and at one point he compares her breasts to doves. The word breast excited me more than the word dove, I can tell you. I just didn't get the literary implications of the simile back then. I could feel them, though. As a budding scientist, I grew fascinated with what I couldn't see with the naked eye. I hoped to one day have free access to an electron microscope to look at atoms. I wanted to see amoeba, germs, viruses, cells alive and at work. I wanted to see it all, what I couldn't see. Now, this intellectual development apparently paralleled my rising interest in the female anatomy what I couldn't see. Meanwhile, back in the church, only natural was my growth as a budding Christian. My spiritual growth, such as it was, kindled only by feeble fires of imagining heaven on earth and imagining what it'd be like when Jesus, unseen for a couple thousand years, finally returns to earth with his glorious legions of trumpeting angels. Well, then life as a preacher's kid might be worth living after all. If that was all how it was going to go down. There were other things in life that were more apparent to the visible eye and ear than just atoms and microorganisms, but I wasn't allowed to see or hear or taste them. Movies, rock and roll, 45s, Elvis Presley, The Beatles, school dances, wine, whiskey, beer, dope, sex, and cigarettes, all of which I accomplished on my own decades later when I could hold my own in worldliness with any man or woman. Speaking of women, Rhonda was the cutest girl I'd ever seen, but she was locked in a different class schedule than mine. I was in eighth grade, she seventh. The sight of her was a drip of honey about to slake my parched tongue. Since I was not allowed to attend dances or movies, I just thought of her when I heard the song blast out of her friend's radio on the school bus. Help me, Rhonda by the Beach Boys. Ah, oh, Rhonda, I just thought of you and what could have been. Then a girl from South Portland arrived in my young flame of life. Now, Nancy may well have been that Indian princess I had dreams about, 
weaving at a loom sometime after midnight in the candlelit corner of the living room with a feather in her hair. She appeared in church one bright Sunday morning in one of the middle pews of the sanctuary visiting with her cousins, the Johnsons, members of our church. She sat there so pretty. Her parents were devout Christians who imposed the same restrictions on their progeny. Therefore, chances of getting what I wanted were good and that we would find ourselves in the same churchy places and events other than movie theaters and dances with ample opportunity to meet and talk as I once did with the young Kennedy boy. Then maybe we'd hold hands and kiss at the same time. Then we would get all warm suddenly and maybe squeeze into each other somehow, somewhere like in the back of a Sunday school classroom next to each other, lovingly sharing my Bible and dreaming whatever we were being told by the instructor. Well, the sad truth be told, that we never talked to each other during her family visits to church. We both were extremely shy. The closest we ever got was a constant exchange of postage stamped letters, sealed and mailed by us. I made it a practice to put the stamp upside down on the envelope. That was the unspoken code for sent with love. Sharing sentiments, and news through the pulpy flesh of the written word was the closest I ever got to Nancy. Never did get to kiss her on the lips. Well, four years later, I experienced this fantasy come true in a Sunday night young people's Bible study group. This time it was the real thing, folks. The girl sitting next to me moved fast and did some suggesting that led me to think I'd arrived at last. She wasn't shy about it, and I wasn't either. The pastor was using an easel to diagram on a large sheet of paper the dynamics of sin through a passable representation of a bow drawn taut with arrow in place for the flight to the bullseye of a virtuous Christian life. However, the times when that arrow missed the mark were called sin. As we touched shoulders during the young pastor's lecture, my arrow was aimed at the virtue of a target called Bonnet, suspended in midair. I could see what was going on below while I engaged in the new reality of imaginary flight to other worlds then it tricked me more than biblical recitations and singing through all five verses of an old gospel song and the frayed hardcover hymnals that were carefully placed in all the pews within reach of the parishioners. This was a trick that my strong imagination afforded me, a precursor to astral projection, some might say. Not only did this trick carry me through long Sunday morning invocations, but long road trips as well. Often we'd drive to Bangor, about an hour trip that seemed to last forever. On one such trip I began to converse with trees, in a way like with the Kennedy boy, 
This time the old pine tree had something to say to me, and I listened. It started out saying it had been growing along this road for a long time. Its wistful voice was soft and deep. It was speaking of patience, the relativity of time. This reverie faded as we approached Old Town. My folks pointed out the Penobscot Reservation and the Canoe Factory. On we'd drive through the U of Maine college town of Orno, then into the cityscape of Bangor. There was an airbase there and a ludicrous plastic statue of Paul Bunyan leering down at us with his axe. Most trips to Bangor entailed a visit to the shoe store, where my parents would take me up to the second floor to be custom-fitted with high-top leather shoes for my feet. Of course, my feet. I was born club-footed and spent my first year on earth wearing a brace that twisted my feet back to as close as normal would become for me. In pre-adolescent years, my special shoes were made to wear everywhere I went. They reminded me of high-top leather sneakers. Naturally, my tricky mind imagined that I was normal like all the other children. I could run and jump as fast and high as any of them. The truth be known that when tired, my one foot often turned in and locked behind the knee of the other leg, causing me to take a violent fall. Folks, the faculty of a strong young imagination came to my rescue from the travails and trials of being preacher's kid. Well then, why might that not be a good thing? Well, in answer, I offer this. Perhaps my imagination was becoming overactive and powerful enough to hold up its promises of a glorious future as the aforementioned rocket scientist and NBA basketball player. I believed in what my imagination projected onto its screen, suspended above the reality of my situation back in those days. I believed the illusion. I felt good about where I imagined I was going in my life to live. Perhaps I felt too good about it. I believed that my future as a geologist especially was, quote, safe and secure from all alarm, end of quote, a phrase from the old gospel hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Yes, in those blessed, hopeful years as a promising junior high student, I traveled the glory road mapped out by my irrepressible imagination. However, propelled me into situations that caused me to stumble and fall over my failure to simply see things as they are. But those slips remain yet to be revealed in future episodes. So be it for now. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see, folks, this imaginary capacity developing so strongly in the PK mind is a way of blocking out the ennui of church as I knew it. It began to block out other things as well and caused me to often stumble and fall in ways 
I could not imagine at the time nor later in life. All I knew was I was on a glory road to the future. We don't see it in this episode as much, but it will become more pronounced in those to follow. Funny how it's, it's such a positive comment when the teacher sends home a note on the report card to the parent which says, your child is very creative. For my parents back then, that might have been, well, a warning. <laughs> I began to imagine what I wanted to imagine. I could evoke voices out of a sagacious old white pine. I could suspend myself in midair. I could suspend myself in the belief that dreams of being a geologist would come true. I could suspend myself in the cocoon of a dream that I would someday make a lot of money. But what happens when the enticing illusions of glory road are pulverized to bits? That then would be when one slips and falls into the dark pit and lies there stunned, wondering what to do next. Let me pose this question to you. Can our imagination blind us to the reality of the world as it is? Well, yes, of course. Previous episodes of this broadcast have shown it to be so. Then here's another question. Does the imaginative capacity develop more swiftly in somebody like a fundamentalist preacher's kid is a means of escape from what imprisons him or her? More swiftly than in kids, say, from a non-fundamentalist background? And does not the imaginative capacity in humans serve to assuage the pain of one's situational affliction, if not flat-out oppression? Ah, those juicy questions about the vicissitudes of our lives. How do we explain them? Probably by doing what I'm doing right now is Kendall Paul, the preacher's kid. All right, take care. Over and out for now. Thanks for listening. Standing on the promises of Christ, my King.